Tonight's Bible reading is in two parts. We're going to Amos today. Um, So we're going to be starting in chapter 8 and we're going to be reading from verses 4 to 10. And then later on we'll be jumping to Amos chapter 9, verses 7 to 15. So starting at verse 4 of chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over? so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So going forward a chapter now to Amos chapter 9, starting at verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtah, and the Arameans from Kerr. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. G'day everyone. Uh, For those who don't know me, my name's Drew, and it's my pleasure to meet you. Nearly dropping that is a bad idea. Um... Yeah, today we're going to be looking at Amos, and uh, it's a really interesting passage um, that I have learnt a lot about. Um, 
But what I thought we'd do is we'd just start off in prayer. So let's begin. Father God, help us to open our hearts to hear your word and to really work to understand what you mean with it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I watched a movie just recently uh, called Elysium, and I apologise if you haven't seen it. I'm probably going to give a little bit of, a, of it away, but it's a Matt Damon movie, and I like Matt Damon. And um, it's a fascinating kind of movie because it has a lot of very different themes running through it, which I found quite compelling. And uh, the actual uh, movie is sort of around the premise of the world is, it's a bit dystopian, the world is overpopulated, it's very polluted, um, and basically what has happened is the social elite have built this like little ring that exists and floats around the earth and on it uh, all the rich people basically live and they live in this paradise. And uh, I was doing a little bit of research on it afterwards because it was a fascinating movie and I discovered that the word Elysium in Greek is, a, is an actual concept and uh, some scholars had sort of been discussing what it meant and one of them wrote that they described it as having shady parklands with residents indulging in an athletic and musical pastimes activities that were thought to be ideal life for ancient Greek aristocracy. And it, it dawned on me that actually the, the reason for the movie being called that is because they depicted uh, the ring in, this, in the same way as the scholars had talked about. And all the social elite had actually been uh, existing in this paradise where they you know, did what they wanted, they lived and ate the way they wanted, they, they had medical technology that was fantastic. Um, but the people on Earth kind of suffered. And basically, what was shown is that the people on earth were living in a squalor, essentially. They were um, essentially servants to the people on Elysium. And it was really, really fascinating because um, even though it was, it's about 10 years old, the movie, it was an interesting sort of picture of the haves and the haves not. Um, the, the emotional weight was very much on the side of the haves, of the have-nots, basically. And uh, what is sort of um, thrown in the mix is this idea of um, social justice. And some people have a lot, and a lot of people have not much. And this, this concept of social justice, or more importantly, justice itself, is, is something that we as people really understand. We, we have a really firm understanding of what justice is, and we know when injustice occurs. Um, we know when we see it happening to people, and we know when it's actually happening to us. It's something that we really experience. And uh, tonight, as we're dipping into this book of, of Amos and, and the passages that were here, the passages speak quite powerfully about justice. Uh, it wants to actually redress the injustice that is present in Israelite society at the time. Uh, it is speaking to a people at a point in time where they had quite a lot of power over others. And for us, this passage has a lot to to speak on, on how we can reframe how we understand injustice and the role that we actually play in that total picture. Additionally, it's an interesting Advent sort of passage which teaches us about what the coming Messiah is, who he is, what he's going to do, and some of the different things about that. So it's actually useful for us to see this as we approach Christmas. So what I wanted to do is kind of work through the passage with three aims. The first is to, to see how injustice is created, the second is to see how injustice is systemic. And the third is to see, how, uh, to see the healer of a broken world. Now, to give a little bit of context in the passage itself, so the, the book of Amos was written in about the 8th century BC, um, and it, it has a heavy theme on justice, and uh, the context at the time of the world was a little bit different to what we might 
understand. So at that time, the neighboring empires, Assyria and Egypt, were uh, in a slump. They were not doing so well. And Israel had actually captured a lot of the trade routes around them. And consequently, um, they were able to introduce into Israel a huge amount of wealth. The problem was that that wealth was sort of flowing into the coffers of the rich. And there was a number of people within Israel who weren't benefiting from uh, these trade routes and what they were, they were um, benefiting to the, the, the country. And so this, this context helps to begin to shape how we understand some of what Amos is writing. Um, so when Amos sort of touches on, on this particular part of the, the passage, he says, uh, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended so that we, we may market wheat? Um, the, the new moon, for those who might not realize, was a festival that happened every month in Israelite culture. Um, so the, the Jewish culture knew that, um, and we're taught from Numbers 28, that on the first of every month, present to the Lord a bull, a burnt offering of two young bulls. So the idea behind this festival was that it was a reminder of God in their monthly calendar. In their monthly routine, they were to worship God and give thanks to Him. And within that, there was a celebration, like a celebration of what God had actually done for them. And similarly, we know what the Sabbath is a little bit more. We're a bit more familiar with that concept. It was a weekly reminder that we are to put down work, we are to worship God, um, and we pause our activities before we resume sort of going to work. And the reason God wanted us to do that was twofold. First was um, not spending time working for God was, was actually a sacrifice. So time um, was something that God wanted us to understand was a resource that we had. And the second part is our bodies needed rest. And yet here, Amos is telling us that people were groaning about wanting to go back to work. They didn't want to do the New Moon Festival. They didn't want the Sabbath. They wanted to actually keep selling. Which is a really interesting thing. And then we learn a little bit more when he goes on to describe that they were skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Now, I actually don't think I need to explain that very much. It's, it's pretty clear evidence that the dishonesty of the business practices at the time was pretty clear. They were doing things that weren't right. But then there's this really intriguing part of it. He, he writes, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Now, there's a couple of confusing statements at the start. That The second part is a bit easier to explain, but basically the sweepings of the wheat is where they'd go and harvest the wheat. And as you'd harvest it, you'd throw it on the ground and you'd sort through the wheat and you get the chaff. And what was actually happening is, is as they were filling bags for people to buy from them the food, they were pushing all the dirt and all the crap that was on the floor into the, the bag as well, because that would actually weigh the bag a little bit more. So they were selling not pure wheat to the, to the people. Um, but what does buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals mean? A really intriguing kind of phrase. Back in ancient Israel, surprise, surprise, there weren't credit cards. So if you didn't have the money for something, you'd have to go and beg for it or you'd do something else. And that something else was you actually would go and ask someone to buy it on your behalf. So you'd go to another person within the society and say, I can't afford to buy food. Um, can you actually buy it for me and I'll work for you to pay it off? So it's a bit of a debt. A similar example would be if I didn't have Sultana brand and milk for my morning breakfast, I'd go to Brad Banducci, who's the CEO of Woolworths, and say, can you buy it for me? He'd say, yes, can you actually, you know, mow my lawns and clean my gutters? And that's kind of how the arrangement would go. But what was being exhibited in this is really interesting. It's all the power sat with the buying class. So they, they were actually holding on to all of the power and selling it on at, at higher rates to, to everyone else in Israel. 
And when you phrase it like that, that actually begins to touch on a little bit of what we're feeling in today's society, right? It's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Interest rates going up, banks making big bucks, you know, record profits. Groceries going up, supermarkets making record profits. What you buy goes less. I, I, I love Monte Carlos. Um, when you actually pull the top off the Monte Carlo, there's less cream than there used to be. Pringles are smaller than what they used to be. They're actually selling you for the same amount of money, less. And this, this idea of we're not getting what we, we used to is, is kind of very similar to what was happening in, in the time of Amos. So this is actually something that we're feeling on a daily basis, and it actually resonates with me personally. And you're probably thinking, you know, why is this actually happening? How, how, did, how could this have happened in God's society? But more pointedly, why is this happening to us? You know, what Amos is trying to define here is what the Bible considers injustice. See, in the way that the Bible is trying to frame it up, injustice is where resources aren't easy, evenly distributed amongst the rest of the people. Um, it prevents people from living their full life, so to speak, or having the things that they need to, to get on. And we know that there's enough resources to be spread around, um, but the people in power aren't doing it themselves. And this is what God hates, and this is what he's focusing on in this particular passage with Amos. Um, if we look at what the behaviours are going on here, we can see that this actually doesn't need to happen. The, the, the people in the selling selling all this stuff, didn't actually need to do this. They didn't need to sweep, you know, the, the shavings of the, the chaff into the, the bag. It wasn't something that was required of them to do, but they were doing it anyway. And what it's identifying to us is that this injustice is actually an issue of the heart, something in here. And importantly, and this is difficult to say, it's present within all of us. The capacity to behave this way where the opportunity is presented exists. This is actually very, very confronting. Um, we are the wrongly done by, aren't we? You know, we're the ones that are suffering from what's going on. But actually, whilst we experience what Amos is describing in our life, we must also realise that we have far more in terms of resource than other people around the world. Um, Stu sort of mentioned it last year, um, uh, last week, sorry, not last year, but um, in general terms, people within the Shire live at a level that's in the top 10% of the world, right? Um, we have food, we have cars, we have really good shelter, uh, we have community, we have phones, we have internet, we have running water, we have all the things that we require sanitary-wise. Um, we have spending money, we have time, we have holidays. The point is here is that we as individuals have resources that we can, if we so choose, divide amongst ourselves and divide amongst other people for their benefit. We could give resources to organisations dedicated to helping others. We could give more resources to individuals that we know personally that actually need it. We could give our time and our skill sets to, to, to causes that actually require them. And me saying this makes everyone here feel very uncomfortable, and I'm conscious of that. Um, it calls into question our choices and our decision-making and our hearts. And what it actually does is it disrupts our sense of seeing ourselves as a, a good person. 
See, the purpose of this isn't for me to sit here and lay the boot into everyone. The purpose is to identify that the issue of injustice, the issue that Amos is actually hammering on, is this issue of the heart. And because it is an issue of the heart, we have to actually see our place in it. Everyone here has made a deal with someone where they've benefited more than the person they're making the deal with, right? And this happened to me at work this week. I watched it actually happen between two people. I'm trying to backfill a, uh, a position in my team. Uh, someone's leaving the business. And we went out and advertised for a permanent role to actually hire, hire someone. And someone internally actually applied for the role, which was great. And they went through the, the whole process and eventually we settled on them as the, the right candidate. And then I watched as my general manager decided that they weren't going to offer them a permanent role, they were going to offer them a contract extension for less money. And I sat there and went, why? Why do that? Why not just do the right thing? And we can all sit here and go, naughty, naughty, and I did to my GM. Um, internally, of course, because uh, it wasn't a position for me to say anything, unfortunately. But the problem is, is that whenever we were to shine a light on any of our lives, episodes like this appear, and they make us very uncomfortable. We don't really like to look at them. Our challenge here in, in the passage is that we are part of the injustice cycle. And Amos very clearly shows that Israel's decision not to deal fairly with each other was injustice, and this is what angered God. Natural conclusion that we take out of this is pretty easy, you know? Well, if, if the system's broke, if, if the people are broken, why don't we create a system that prevents it from happening in the first place? It's a pretty logical thought. This is what God had actually intended in the first place. In, in Exodus, we actually read, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, God could see that they weren't being treated fairly under the Egyptians, and he took them out. And he gave them a land with resource to live. And what he was trying to do is craft them to be his people, craft them to live differently. Um, see, he gave them a set of laws and he gave them a set of rules to live amongst each other. And the establishment of the laws from Exodus all the way through to Deuteronomy was the blueprint for how to be different as a society. You know, he taught them how to worship, he taught them how, uh, what was right and wrong and how to deal with each other, he taught them how to interact properly with each other, he taught them how to build their society, he taught them how to use their resource. He built this into the law. You know, it, it, the Old Testament's littered with this stuff. You know, Exodus 22, he gives instructions on lending money to the poor to ensure that they weren't taken advantage of. Leviticus 25, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee were examples of protections built into the law to prevent um, the poor from remaining in slavery. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, provision to ensure foreigners, orphans, widows, and the Levites had enough to eat. Uh, Exodus 23, he declares that the Israelites shouldn't go and interfere with the livelihood of their, their enemies. He's saying, don't go into their land and take their resource. You know, it's all through the Old Testament. Everything is there. You just need to look for it. And God's laws were countercultural to what was happening at the time. He did this, he instituted these laws because he knew that the damage done to people when it wasn't wasn't happening was significant 
So what we have here in Israel is a society that is built in a system that God determined. God created the system to prevent injustice within the very laws that he laid down. So what happened? You know, how did the Israelites get into this position? And I think we see it in, in, in uh, Amos 8, 7 and 9, 7. It's two really interesting parts. The first is that God sees the pride here and he remembers. He sees what they're doing and he says, I remember. And the second part is, um, he sits there and he says, are you Israelites not the same to me as the Cushites? And this is a really fascinating statement. Uh, it took me a while to kind of work this one out, but it's actually a bit of a, a backhand slap to Israel. Who were the Cushites? I, I didn't know who they were until I looked it up, but they were basically a distant people roughly in the location of where Ethiopia is. And the question is, why is God comparing them to, to, to Israel? Um, what he's doing is he's actually making a statement right now that Israel is the same to him as the Cushites. They're very far away from him. They're very far away emotionally from him. A commentator sort of delves into this really well when he says, um, even more stinging was the second question that forced him to realise that God had managed the immigrations of their pagan, age-long opponents, the Philistines and the Syrians or Aramaeans. Two painful lessons were forced by, on Israel by Yahweh's questions. God's sovereignty and care extended beyond their boundaries to distant and hostile peoples, and their exodus contained no uniqueness to protect them from the judgments once they had ruptured the covenant. Any vestige of national pride, social smugness, or military security was snatched away by the divine interrogator. Slap. God was showing that the Israelites had been given every opportunity to set themselves apart from the other nations, every opportunity to, to build a society where the foundation was a relationship with him and designed to sit in line with a covenant where everyone was treated equitably and they failed miserably. This is the reason for God's anger. They had taken what he'd given them and misused it. And because they broke the covenant, injustice was running rampant and people were suffering from it. And our immediate response is, we're not like that though. Our optimistic selves think we can build a better system. And I would respond to that by highlighting a really popular book. You've probably all read it at school. Um, if you're at school, you're probably going to read it, and it's Animal Farm. Uh, you know, it's a story of a small farm where animals who see injustice in the way that they're being treated, they revolt. Uh, and they're led by a group of animals who basically overthrow their masters out of the humans. But the genius of the book is then watching as those who took over leadership slowly betrayed their own system. And it's fascinating. You know, they shift the rules, and the initial justice and distribution of resource is then changed in favour of them. And the imbalance that started the animal re revolution was then reinstated. Slowly, but it happened. The animals needed liberation from their liberators. The pigs had eventually resembled what they'd removed. And you might say, oh, you know, that's about socialism, communism. And I'd say, look at any system in the world today, and it is exactly the same. You've got the US, which is a free market economy, and there is more wealth and disparity and homeless over there than I care to imagine. The problem isn't the system. You can craft any system you want and implement it. The problem is the human heart. We are the problem. 
And to prove that we are the problem, I'm going to give a little bit of a thought example here. If a government agency was to walk through this door right now and strip you of all your life savings under the guise of we need to provide it to everyone else who has a need, you would be angry. A less extreme example, if the government came in and said we're going to raise taxes so that we can provide more for the people who need, you would be angry. If I came around and said, give me 500 bucks and I will give it to someone who needs it, you would be less angry, but you still wouldn't want to do it. And everything I've said here, the fact that I'm talking about money, your money, makes you feel very uncomfortable, makes me feel very uncomfortable. No system fixes this problem because the system can't fix how the human heart actually operates. What we're left with is this dawning realisation that we are just as much a part of the problem and there's nothing that can actually fix it. And if Amos had left it there, it would be a very depressing book. I'm not going to lie. Um, but he doesn't. Chapter 9, towards the end, verse 7, it takes this wild swing. And it goes from condemnation of Israel's behaviour into this vision of hope, which just sort of springs magically out of the passage. There's this grand statement. The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow all through the hills. You know, this is significant agricultural language. God is talking about rebuilding cities to live in, yes, but he's also talking about they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. It's language of abundance. It's language of plenty. It's language of there's so much. God is saying that there will be so much of what we need in the world that no one possibly could go without. Abundance that you have never experienced before is coming. But what grabbed my attention is the references to wine. And the reason why is because I work in the wine industry, in case you didn't know, and have done for a while. And every time I come across passages in the Bible about wine, I, my brain twigs like that, and I go, oh, I've got to follow this thread, because rabbit holes are fantastic. Um, but wine in the Bible has a very specific meaning. Um, Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek. He comes to Abraham after his victory, and he gives him bread and wine to celebrate as a, as a means of worshipping God. In Exodus and Leviticus, we see that drink offerings to God were with wine. 1 Samuel, we see that wine is offered as a sacrifice. 1 Chronicles, we see that wine is kept in the temple. Isaiah 62, the people of Israel were told that their food and their wine would not be taken by foreigners, uh, but that they would be actually allowed to consume it. Deuteronomy says, it's a really interesting passage, this one, um, Again, I went down a rabbit hole, but the tithing feast whereby the people of Israel would have set aside a portion of their earnings and use it to celebrate an occasion for eating and celebrating in the presence of Yahweh their God. What God was doing is he was redistributing what he was owed for the, for the um, enjoyment of his people. So when God actually says to Amos, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, He's telling us that he's going to flood the world with so much resource that nobody will be wanting. This is God's way of healing the world of injustice by restoring us and providing 
so much for everyone um, that they could possibly never use at all, you know. This way, injustice couldn't happen because people would have everything they needed and so much more, and it, basically it, it would uh, bypass the requirement for a, for a system. But importantly, God is pointing to a future that will be ushered in by the Messiah. And the topic of wine, it keeps appearing in the Bible, down the track, down the track, and then all of a sudden you see it in John 2. You know, wedding at Cana. Jesus attends a wedding, the wine runs out. And that's a massive social faux pas in um, Jewish society, right? Weddings in those times, they were village, long affair, village affairs, weeks long, uh, massive, massive issues in terms of like they were such a social mark on the calendar. Um, and Mary comes to Jesus and she says, do something. And Jesus responds really abruptly. He says, direct translation, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Mary, like a true mother and probably rolling her eyes, just says to the attendants, just do what he says. So what he does is he gets the attendants to fill six large jars with water and has it drawn and then taken to the uh, master of ceremonies. And that, that master of ceremonies, he basically takes a sip of it and he's gobsmacked. He's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Where has this come from? Usually you serve this at the start, not at the end. And at that moment, where a young couple getting married had run out of the most important resource at a wedding, Jesus turns around and produces roughly 500 litres worth of the best quality wine that you'll ever get. Why? Jesus used his power to share with this young married couple something that they didn't have. The story of their wedding would have lived on in the memory of that town for years. You know, he saved their reputation when he saved their wedding from running uh, their wedding from running out of wine. And there's so much discussion around that passage. Um, I read a book once. It was look, examining the miracles of Jesus, and 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 part of it, this examination was that um, comparing the different religious uh, figures in 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 um, ancient Near Eastern uh, faiths. Basically, that first miracle always set the tone for uh, the religious figure's um, uh, sort of ministry. So that first inaugural sign must be big. It must be huge, right? And yet Jesus' miracle is just sitting there turning water into wine. Why? Why that? You know, how is this such a huge deal? See, the significance of it is attached somewhat to the response to his mother, where he says, my hour has not yet come. See, hour is a technical term. Uh, it's used frequently within the gospel to identify when Jesus' Jesus's death was coming, right? It's all the way through John. John 7, John 8, John 12, John 13. Um, but why does Jesus say this, you know, to such a simple request? And it is a case where the present is a parable for the future. When you're at a wedding, what's the thing you do? What's the one thing that's running through your head? And it's what your wedding's going to be like. Last wedding I went to, I remember recalling my own wedding that I was at. You know, it's just, it's a thing. Every time you're at a wedding, you think about your wedding. And a key theme of Jesus' life was that he would be the bridegroom and Israel would be his bride. So as he was the Messiah, he would wed himself to his betrothed and redeem them. Um, and so he continues to adapt the wedding as a symbol for the consummation of the Messianic age, right? So it's basically when the Messiah is going to come. Not to mention, Jesus knew that the prophet spoke of the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. So it isn't a stretch to think that Jesus is sitting there, looking at everyone, sipping his cup of wine, 
thinking about what he needed to go through to supply the wine for his wedding. He's sitting there watching everyone thinking, to get to my wedding, I have to die for you. And this starts to explain his odd response to Mary. It's as if she's interrupted his train of thought and he's saying, Mom, it's not yet my time. It's not my time to sacrifice. And we know that this is what he's thinking when he chooses the way to make the wine. These jars that he used, they were the ceremonial washing jars that that the, the Jews used to cleanse themselves before they went to God. It was identifying that they couldn't um, come before God until they were clean. His inaugural miracle is the foretelling of what, is going to, what it is going to take for him to, to um, marry his bride. And at this point, you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with justice in Amos, right? Do you remember that Elysium movie that I mentioned? I'm going to ruin a little bit of it, but... Matt Damon's character eventually tackles the injustice of the situation between Elysium and Earth head-on, right? He, he flies to Elysium, there's lots of guns, there's lots of shooting, and he basically takes um, himself and uh, someone who else is ill to this medical center to try and um, heal him, heal himself and heal them, right? And in the process of doing that, there's this mad battle, good versus evil, everyone can see it, it's going on, and inevitably he dies to save not just his friend, but also to change the dynamics so that all the people on earth would be turned into citizens of Elysium and be allowed to then go and, you know, be healed and get the resources that they get. And this resonates with us. When we watch movies like that, it resonates. And it resonates because we want the big fight. We want the victory over injustice in the way that we imagine it. We want guns blazing, we want everything to go crazy. See, Israel conceived of their Messiah in the exact same way. A military genius that would liberate them from the Romans and injustice would be overturned and justice reinstated. And then all the resources would be redistributed accordingly and Israel would get its due. But the problem with that is that if that was actually to have happened, someone still loses. Our human brokenness means that we simply cannot redistribute things in a way that will make it fair for everyone, no matter how we feel about them. It can't be done fairly or evenly. And we cannot build a system that will work for everyone because eventually someone will take advantage of it. What the movie identifies to us is that we're trying to resolve, the way we're trying to resolve injustice doesn't work, cannot work because of us. What we actually need is a healer. We need a healer of the world. We need someone who is going to heal the hearts of the people that live in it. We need someone who's going to heal the world in a way where everyone is provided for. And the Bible points us through Amos to who that healer is. Because a few years later, after that wedding in Cana, Jesus, on the night of Passover and at his last supper, holds a cup of wine and says, drink this. This is my blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of many. Mark tells us that Jesus healed the world by pouring out his life to reconcile us with God. Peter tells us that he suffered injustice at the hands of the Pharisees, so, as Paul put it, we would redeem the inheritance of the King of Kings. Matthew and John tell us that he was stripped bare of everything, his clothes, his dignity, his freedom, so that we might be clothed in the heirs of a righteous heir. Peter said that we receive an inheritance so vast 
so grand and so enormous that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is so big that all those who believe in him will never again suffer injustice like what Amos has actually described. No longer will the poor be bought with silver. They've been set free and bought for with the blood of Christ. No longer will people be needy for sandals. Um, They will be eternally clothed in royal robes. And no longer will they buy uh, wheat mixed with dirt and dust. They will feast of rich food and well-aged wine. In one act, Jesus poured out to us unlimited resource and righteousness in the greatest act of justice, despite being the victim of the greatest act of injustice. We have a God so invested so concerned for the way that the world treats us that he divested everything he had so that he could have so that we could have more than what we ever truly deserved jesus knew the words of amos he knew that people were struggling and they, he knew that people were being bought for silver and matthew tells us that jesus was basically bought for 30 pieces of silver so that he could buy us with his own blood and when he bought us with his blood He sets us free. And those who see that, those who see what he has shared with us, all of a sudden have their hearts healed. When you see what you've got stored in heaven, you no longer worry about what you've got on earth. Because whatever resource you have here is so insignificant to what you've been given by God that sharing it becomes an act of countercultural joy. In fact, when you see what God has given you, the magnitude of what he has poured out for you, all you want to do is give all you have to others so that they can get a tiny experience of what God wants to give to them. And this is what Amos means by new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. He was watching the injustice being done by God's people and realizing that the only solution was for the cup of Christ to be poured out for all. Before I finish, I just want to leave with three things. The first is realise what we have. We've been gifted an inheritance. We've been gifted an inheritance by the King of Kings. That means that what we have here is but a morsel of what we were given in the new heavens and the new earth. We stand to gain more than you could ever imagine. When times are tough, remember what has been poured out for you, and remember what you have got. Second is realise what we can give. When we realise what we have, it means that we begin to see what we can actually give, right? So, because anything you have here pales in comparison to what's going to come. Give knowing that you've already received. Provide knowing that you've already been provided for. Act justly knowing that the most you that the most just man in the universe was treated with such injustice so that he could share his inheritance with you for all eternity. And the last is to realise what, what is to come. So Revelation tells us about another wedding, right? It tells us about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Every time we're struggling under the injustice of the world, every time we're watching things happen to ourselves or others, we get the chance to take comfort in the cup that is to come. Because after the wedding... Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We have a feast coming for us where the food and wine will never end, and injustice will be but a faded 
memory. Hold on to the cup that is to come because it will never run dry. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son Jesus poured himself out for the world, not just to end injustice, but to transform the lives of those who believe in him. We ask that you help us to look forward to what is coming, knowing that the present is but a blip in time and the eternal inheritance we gain through your son is waiting for us. Help us live our lives in a way where we seek to change the injustice of the world in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.